Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Registration is now open for our 2023 I Believe Survivorship Seminar. This year, we'll be coming to you live and virtually from Seattle, Washington. Join Dr. Andrew Stacy, top physicians and experts for two days of workshops and educational sessions on living with ocular melanoma. We'll explore the town, of course. I hear there is a dinner cruise planned for Friday night. Meet new omies and check in with good friends. And at the end of the weekend, you can plan to end the week on a high note with cocktails and dinner. For those planning to attend in person, we hope to see you at the welcome reception the evening of September 7th. So make sure to plan your travel accordingly. Make sure to reserve your hotel room at the link provided at the time of registration, or you can book at your nearby favorite hotel. If you're unable to attend in in person during registration, simply select the virtual attendance option. If you do plan to attend in person or online, make sure to register using the link in the show notes of each podcast episode or head to www.acureinsight.org slash education dash events. After you register, be sure to finalize your travel plans and reserve your room for the hotel nearby. Please email contact at acureinsight.org with any registration questions. Share the news with your fellow Omis, guys. We can't wait to finally see you in Seattle this year. Thank you for inviting me to um, join you guys this morning. Really excited to, to be here. Um, so I'm the director of the Melanoma and Skin Cancer Research Program at Sierra Cannon. So I'm at Sierra Cannon Research Institute at Tennessee Oncology. And like you said before, I'm, I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And Dr. Moser is from Scottsdale, Arizona, and he's with Honor Health Research Institute. And I'm going to let you designate anything else you want to explain about what your role is there. Yeah, so that's exactly correct. So I'm one of the medical oncologists at Honor Health Research Institute, and I lead our skin cancer and uvula melanoma programs. Um, so we guys, we have you guys down to talk a little bit about um, what we shared in our newsworthy notes on ASCO um, from Kevin, who is one of the people who goes around during ASCO from our medical um, kind of side of the patient board. And he's really good at just diving into the information and just nitpicking anything and everything from these conferences that has to do with uveal melanoma. Um, so you guys have this list of 12 novel therapies that are related to uveal melanoma. And, and um, we're just going to kind of let you go through and, and talk about those. And then I'll be here to kind of just jump in with conversation as well um, as I have questions or things like that. Perfect. <clears throat> so we just have some very basic slides just to kind of since we're talking about 12 different things, just to kind of help people keep them um, straight. So as we already said, you know, uh, I'm Justin Mosier. My colleague here today is Meredith McKean, and we're just gonna walk through the different trials. So the first clinical trial that um, we're gonna talk about is the Plume clinical trial. And this is a clinical trial out of, um, I think, Institut Curie in France, but definitely somewhere in France where they're combining Pembrolizumab, Keytruda, commonly used immune therapy for both melanoma and uveal melanoma with a pill called lenvatinib or lenvima. 
Linvatinib or Linvima is one of these pills that has many different effects, but mainly blocks blood vessels. And this combination of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab has actually been studied in patients with refractory cutaneous melanoma. And the early studies suggest that there is benefit. Because of that, you know, they're looking at this combination in uveal melanoma. This uh, study is currently ongoing. You, um, it's only for patients who have previously not seen immune checkpoint inhibitors. For people who are HLA AO201 positive, you could have gotten Kimtrak or Tabendibus first. And I believe that at, when they presented at ASCO, they were about 50% accrued. I think they had about 30 of a planned 60 patients. No data has been reported so far with this, comp this study, but they are currently enrolling um, and it is an option for those who are in France. I do not believe this trial is in the United States. Great. Um, so the, and, and, you know, I'll just add with the lenvatinib pembro, uh, you know, it's a combination, right, that, that's been approved for a number of different tumor types. And so now they're kind of looking at it in uveal. So I know one of the most common questions we'll get in the clinic is, you know, what's your experience? What do you guys know about this treatment regimen? And you'll see as we go through, you know, most of these are novel compounds, but some of these, we are kind of recycling some drugs that are used maybe in other tumors, or we know some about um, in uveal. Um, and so that's always a, a good question to ask, because sometimes even if there isn't a lot of experience in uveal melanoma, well, maybe there's been some experience maybe in, in other tumors. Um, so this, and I, I echo Dr. Moser, like, feel free to type in the chat. We, our goal was to keep these slides basic so we could um, really try to engage in conversation and not overwhelm you with um, too much information going through, you know, kind of all the, all the highlighted studies for uveal melanoma. Um, so the next study um, that we are going to highlight was another one of Immunocore studies. Um, so this is F106C. Um, so everyone's familiar now with the FDA-approved Kimtrak. Um, so this is another bispecific, kind of a similar molecule, um, but now this is now targeting um, PRAIM. So PRAIM um, is generally expressed in, we consider it a, a cancer-associated angin because it really should only be expressed um, kind of in, in fetal cells and the testes because it's um, involved in meiosis and um, cell division. But we know there's increased expression uh, in primary tumors that increases the risk for metastasis and increased um, expression in that metastatic disease. There's been a lot of work done on this with um, Dr. Harbor's group at UT Southwestern. Um, so this is a really common target that we've seen in several studies. Um, but I think this is um, I think this is the most promising one, or certainly the furthest along. Um, unless you can think of one, another one, Dr. Moser, that's um, further along. But I think this is certainly the one, maybe with the most um, data at this point targeting PRAIM. So this study, it's a phase one, two study. It is enrolling a number of different solid tumors, but they are specifically interested in uveal melanoma patients. Um, again, patients have to have the HLA-AO2-01's positive status. Um, so um, this is something that can be checked standard of care, um, but would have to be repeated for trial eligibility. Um, and then this is a frontline study right now. Um, so just important, I think, as we discussed the last hour, 
some of these studies, one of the important things to know in sequencing is just, this is a study that was previously enrolling patients that were previously treated frontline, but they do have more data and they presented some of this um, at ASCO showing that of the six patients that were treatment naive treated up front, three of six patients had a partial response. And so based on that, they really think um, probably the best option here is frontline. Um, patients could have had prior liver-directed therapy, um, but this is enrolling, I think, certainly a great option. Um, the, the safety data that's been demonstrated so far, you know, I think um, overall well-tolerated, but I think very similar to what you'd expect from ChemTrack because it has a very similar mechanism of action, just a different target. Um, and so it is that weekly, weekly dosing. Um, and so looking for a center that's closest to you would certainly be um, the, the best, best idea. But Dr. Moser, any thoughts on this study? Because I know it's, it's been a lot around the round. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, they presented the first part of this study. I think Dr. McKean was part of that. And then Omen Hamid, who just got off, presented it at ESMO last year. And, you know, obviously we don't know the data is still early and we need to mature. But to me, it looked like this looks like it's just as good, if not even slightly better than Kimtrak. So I think this is a great option. If you're, you know, someone who lives around a center that offers this trial and you're debating, you know, Kimtrak alone or this study, I think this study is a great option given the exciting data that they've already presented last, I think, October or September, whenever it was. Okay, so we'll jump to the next study then. So this is a phase one study of a molecule called DYP688. So this is a drug from Novartis. And DYP688 <clears throat> is a drug antibody conjugate. <clears throat> Sorry about that. So what that means is it's an antibody directed to a protein that's expressed on a cancer. <clears throat> on the back end of that antibody, they actually attach a payload specifically designed to kill the cancer or you know, slow the cancer from growing. The benefit from antibody drug con conjugates, we think, is that it's a way of selectively delivering you know, weight or cancer treatments to the cancer without get worth getting less of a dose to the normal tissue. And we think that makes it more effective and also safer with less side effects. And we have a lot of drug antibody conjugates that have been approved for other cancers in the past couple of years. I think starting in the lymphomas, but now in, you know, breast cancer, urothelial cancer, and, you know, lots of different things. And I think that concept is very true. We see good response rates with these drugs with less side effects than chemotherapy. So, this specific drug antibody conjugate targets a protein called PML17, which is actually one of the things pathologists use to diagnose melanoma under a microscope. If you get a biopsy and they don't know what your cancer is, they will actually stain it for PML17. So we know that this is very much expressed on um, melanoma cells. And, um, and the payload is actually a drug that blocks GNAQ and GNA11. So we know for uveal melanoma, about 93 to 96% of these tumors, um, <clears throat> they are mutated and driven in GNAQ and GNA11. So this is a way of selectively kind of shutting down that mutation. You know, I do have a typo here. Um, it says the status is closed. Um, the status they actually are still enrolling in the phase one escalation right now. So I think this is available at three or four sites in the United States. 
and um, and more sites across the world. But you know, drug antibody conjugates have, as a class, and other tumors have shown good response rates. Not necessarily durable response rates like immune therapy, but we don't know. This drug could be different. So I think this is a great option um, if it's available. But again, it is only a limited, I think, at three or four centers in the United States so far. Any thoughts, Dr. McKean? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, I think exciting to see antibody drug conjugates come to uveal melanoma, um, but yeah, I think right now it's a very um, pretty limited study, limited sites. Um, so I agree. I think um, certainly if it's if it's an option, I think certainly worth looking into. But um, I know it's it's um, very limited at this point. All right. So moving on to IDE one nine six. So um, this is a drug that's been in development for quite some time. Um, I'd almost say 10 years. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. And it what IDE196, now called Dorobacertib, is, is it's a PKC inhibitor. And the challenge is, um, so the opportunity here is that the, is a PKC inhibitor just downstream of GNAQ, GNA11, just like some of the other compounds that we've discussed. And so um, the idea is that this would be a targeted therapy um, that should be an option really for most uveal melanoma patients, since we know the GNAQ11 um, pathway is activated as kind of a defining feature of uveal melanoma. And so it's nice because it is specific to uveal melanoma, but because those mutations are so prevalent, we don't have to do any pre-screening. We just think most patients would benefit. The challenge has been, um, you know, historically when um, this was previously under development was just trying to manage the toxicity um, but yet we know there's been efficacy. And when this drug was under, um, I believe it was when it was under Novartis, at one of the lowest doses, a patient had a complete response. And so um, there's been a lot of excitement for this drug. Um, this drug is currently still in a phase one, two study. Um, Dr. Moser and I are both um, involved with this study and will continue to be involved with this molecule. Um, they they've moved from um, investigating this drug as a monotherapy um, into combination. And that was, you know, back like what Dr. Hamid and Dr. Carvajal had said, you know, the importance of doing those biopsies. We agree with patients um, love to avoid biopsies. We understand, especially biopsies of the liver, they are uncomfortable at best. Um, but it was based on, you know, biopsy information that helps the development of these molecules and being able to understand from liver biopsies that, hey, it looks like there is increased CMET expression. And so they were able to add on a, a medication, crizotinib, that was already um, has already been developed for patients with lung cancer, um, but does target CMET to be able to add that drug into development and to now be able to see um, you know really profound responses. Um, so there's been um, data kind of presented um, in in um, kind of every six months or so um, by the company. The most recent data was the combination with crizotinib demonstrating that um, patients with liver only disease, of 11, I believe it was 11 of those patients, all of those patients had some level of tumor shrinkage. Um, and then the response rates in the greater population um, about closer to about 40% or so. Now, this drug does come with side effects. Um, and I advise any patient that, hey, here's a list of side effects you need that 
this drug can cause. You need like we're going to continue to see you closely, um, manage the you know please call us because um, there are definitely there are definitely side effects um, with this treatment, but we can help you manage them. And and certainly over those first four to eight weeks, you know it's really just trying to figure out how does this medication affect your body. Um, but I think certainly a, a, a really great and exciting option in the field. Um, and this will be going into phase three in the frontline setting later this year, hopefully. So I think this is another one of those studies that um, certainly if you can um, look at this in the frontline setting, I would highly encourage you to do that because it won't be available in later lines, um, except as compassionate use. And that's a, that's a really challenging route. Um, so Dr. Moser, I know, um, you've been involved, um, uh, in this trial and, and will, um, continue to be moving forward. So appreciate your thoughts on this. Yeah, I echo everything you've said, you know, and I think, you know, we've had some limited data presented about this um, study so far, but Dr. McKean's actually going to give us a bigger update in Paris at ESMO later this year. And I think getting that information is going to be really exciting. Um, you know, what they've presented so far, like Dr. McKean said, is we do see tumor shrinkage. And I think when you look at the data that was presented by Dr. Katz and Dr. Uh, Hamid, a lot of times in uveal melanoma, we don't necessarily see deep rates of shrinkage. We, with a lot of treatments, we just see kind of stable disease, which is good, right? If a patient's cancer isn't growing and isn't causing them symptoms and they don't have side effects from treatment, that's a win. Um, but, you know, this had, from that, what they reported can cause shrinkage. And so I think this is a really good option, especially for people with bigger tumors, symptomatic tumors, where we really need that shrinkage because what they presented so far is we can see shrinkage in a lot of patients. And so I think this is a really um, good option and I'm excited to see it move forward. So the next study we'll talk about is very similar to um, the last study we talked about. So this was a phase one study of roganosalib. I'm probably not saying that correctly. So the medication, the IDE196, so derivative that Dr. McKean just talked about is a PKC inhibitor. So PKC stands for protein kinase C. And protein kinase C, there's actually nine or 10 different isoforms of this protein, which means, you know, it's not one molecule, it's actually kind of a family of them. And, you know, IDE196 is a pan-PKC inhibitor, it tends to block all of them. And we're starting to see people get more specific. And that's a, this, is, that's a, this is an example of that. So this drug targets PKC Delta, which is one of the nine family members of PKC. So it's more selectively blocking um, this isoform. And this is exciting because in general, when we talk about pills to treat cancers, the more specific you can be, the potentially more potent you can be, which means it can be more effective, maybe but definitely the more selective you are, the less side effects you get. And so we know that PKC is actually, this specific version of the protein is really related to the immune cells and helps kind of suppress the immune system. So this drug really targets that function of protein kinase C and tries to reactivate the immune system. So this was a completed phase one study that they did. And initially it was in multiple tumor types. 
And then when they saw some interesting data in uveal melanoma, they kind of expanded to, I think it was a 20 patient arm of uveal melanoma. So this is an oral pill that you take once a day. I think one of the exciting things about this is their serious side effect rate, which is a grade three side effect is what we call that, was only around 7% at their high dose, which is very, very low. You know, there's very few cancer treatments anywhere in any tumor that have a 7% uh, significant side effect rate. When they looked at the, um, you know, the responses in uveal melanoma, I don't believe they reported tumor shrinkage, but they show that in patients who, in patients with refractory uveal melanoma that they treated, their median survival was about 20 months. Now for Kimtrak, which is our only FDA approved therapy for uveal melanoma, if we use it first line, we see an average survival of about 21 months. So these are patients who have failed standard therapy and are living just as long on average as Kimtrak. And so it's a small patient population. So we clearly need to get more, um, you know, continue to study this to figure it out further. But if we really have a drug that can provide that level of benefit with that little of side effects, with an oral pill that you take daily rather than something you have to come in once a week, I think that's very exciting. And so this study um, is closed. I believe the company's planning um, some further options about trying to start a phase two or phase three study. Um, I don't think we have timelines for that yet, but I think the concept of targeting the specific form of PKC rather than all PKC given the responses we've seen in the last study Dr. McKean talked about, is exciting. And we're gonna to start to see some more trials come into this space later this year about targeting other PKC isoforms rather than just Delta. And so I think this is an exciting field. Dr. McKean? Yeah, I agree. I think this is certainly one of those studies to, to keep an eye on, um, because like you said, I think we've got demonstrated track record um, with this with this mechanism and clearly um, with having a little bit more specificity and having a, a really nice side effect profile, I think that's certainly something to keep an eye on. All right, so Moving on um, to LNS8801. So um, this is a, a novel mechanism uh, of action. So this is a GPER agonist. Um, and so GPER, um, so the GPER agonist, so decreases CMIC protein depletion, um, which increases melanocyte differentiation, right? That's the challenge with cancer. Some of these are kind of baby cells that keep growing and don't become kind of adult melanocytes. And so they just keep growing and dividing. Um, so this is a, a novel mechanism of action. Um, they've evaluated this for a number of different um, tumor types, but specifically uveal melanoma, both as a monotherapy by itself and in combination with pembrolizumab or Keytruda. And so we do have some early results showing that um, actually pretty great um, toxicity profile. Um, patients were able to manage um, side effects um, very well. And of the 15 patients um, that were, that were um, reported with results at this point, um, some of them had just gotten monotherapy, some in combination, um, there was a 50% disease control rate. And so what that means, and I guess trying to decipher when um, you're looking through some of the um, data from these um, conferences and trials, 
disease control rate includes patients with stable disease. And we define stable disease um, as patients that have had up to you know 30% growth or 20% um, or excuse me, 30% shrinkage or 20% growth. And so it's actually a fairly large range, um, but it's still clinically important. And so this drug did show a 50% disease control rate um, and did have one patient that had a greater than 30% shrinkage of their tumors consistent with a partial response. So I think really exciting to see um, this mechanism of action. I think this one um, is still enrolling, um, but I think that's certainly something on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, if interested in, say, a trial like this, if you go on there, it'll show the different sites, and they should have a contact person that you can reach out to to say, hey, if I'm, I'm interested, what, you know, um, is this still enrolling, and there's eligibility criteria listed there. Um, but I think um, certainly an exciting, you know, different mechanism of action um, and, and something that we'll be, we'll be watching closely. Dr. Moser, any thoughts um, that you um, have on this? Trial? Yeah, I agree. You know, when it just kind of a bigger picture of this study. It's exciting because the class of proteins called G-couple protein receptors have notoriously been something that we've not been able to figure out how to target with drugs. You know, we target tyrosine kinases, which just is another type of protein all the time. And pretty much all of this pills you take for cancer are tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but we've really struggled to build therapies that can block G-coupled protein receptors. And we know GNAQ and GNA11 are G-coupled protein receptors. So the fact that we're starting to see people cracking how we can target these things, I think is really exciting for the future because this is a brand new field that no one has been able to do before. And, you know, the downstream ramifications of being able to do this, I think, are really exciting. Now, we probably won't see this for five, 10 years, but it's really exciting new science. Um, I realized I had the questions thing closed and there was a couple of questions about the trials we already talked about. So we'll go back and address them. Um, so for DYP688, the question was, is this a systemic option and not a liver-directed therapy? It is. Most antibody drug conjugates, and I believe this one too, is an IV medication that goes everywhere. So it is a systemic option. And then someone else asked, um, why was PKC Delta chosen as the target rather than the other eight? I think the reason for that is PKC Delta is the most notorious isoform of PK or PKC that suppresses the immune system. And they were really trying to target a drug or trying to make the drug have immune effects. I believe, this is me guessing, I don't know for sure, um, but I believe that's, that's why they chose that one was because that is the immune um, effector PKC isoform. So Dr. Moser, can I jump in? Yep. Oh, I'm echoing. Can I jump in um, with a couple questions kind of around a few of the things that you've been talking about? Absolutely. So you guys have talked about a few different, obviously a few different things that are systemic therapies. So like as a patient with uveal melanoma myself, um, one of the things that like I keep hearing more and more in the metastatic community um, is that it's vital, at least a, as, as early as possible, that's why we screen so often, that it's vital to try to, to like get, get disease control in the liver first. Um, so do we know if there's any data on these systemic, um, these six systemic treatments, these ones where it's just a pill or it's an IV that shows that it's successful in containing liver disease as opposed to 
whole body disease. Um, because I think that one of the challenges that I see in the metastatic community is, is when a patient who has only rampant liver disease is trying a systemic trial that has not yet been proven effective across the board in the liver. Um, and I just, I guess there's, I just feel like there's gotta be a balance between how do we, how do we figure out the best time to do liver directed and the best time to add in a systemic treatment. Do you want to go ahead with that, Dr. McKean? Sure, I think I can get started. Uh, I mean, it's a great question. And I think ultimately, um, I think those of us in the field, um, there's there's kind of differing opinions. I think um, most folks agree there's certainly a role for both liver-directed and systemic therapy. Um, and I think certainly as we're getting more uveal melanoma-specific um, drugs, um, we are able to offer those a little bit earlier. Um, now, when to your to your question about patient response and achieving response in the liver, so for a trial, the goal is that you have to pick representative lesions for that patient's disease to be able to follow, and you're doing specific measurements. But even if they're even if um, you know a patient has disease in the lungs and you're following those lung nodules and those have shrunk, but the liver disease is growing, you know, that would still in general be considered, you know, they'll do the measurements, but then you also have to have your clinical um, acumen to say, hey, is this actually progressing? And so when, when these trials present saying a partial response, that, that has to take into account their disease diffusely. So um, I think there, there are some studies, so like the IDE196 derovacertib trial, um, they've they've done the work to show that the disease the liver metastases showed increased CMET expression on monotherapy and that's why they added the crizotinib. I think we are getting smarter about under trying to understand the liver metastases specifically, but I do think some of these trials are maybe a little early yet for them to really be able to say we're clearly seeing, um, you know, disease shrinking specifically in the liver. Um, but that's where, you know, they're able to say, Hey, does it look like the disease diffusely is, is overall decreasing? Dr. Mosier, uh, I know you have a lot of experience as well in, you know, early phase trials where most of these are, um, lying, lying. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, when we have studies, you know, I think you explained the response rate perfectly. And when we have studies where that have reported responses like the idea drug, we can meet or we can take that to mean that they had responses in their livers. And so many people, uh, patients with uveal melanoma have liver responses. So, you know, with if we have something that causes shrinkage in a substantial number of patients, I would consider that probably equivalent to a liver-directed therapy because it probably is going to cause shrinkage in the liver and give liver control. Um, you know, my personal approach is if you have moderate or higher disease burden, I try to do a liver-directed therapy first, try to get that back under control. But I do like to start you on a systemic therapy or a clinical trial, if that's the best option, quickly soon after that, because, you know, the liver-directed therapies... Uh, other than, you know, percutaneous hepatic perfusion, which is currently being reviewed by the FDA with DELCAP, they don't necessarily, they definitely don't control disease outside the liver and their durability may not be that great. So I like to start something systemic too, to try to give it that kind of holistic approach for lack of a better word about targeting the liver, but then also trying to do something that has the potential, although maybe small to provide that long-term durable benefit. 
So can I ask a question about kind of what you guys mentioned about the data around, um, for example, if someone is on a trial and they have lung nodules that are shrinking or maybe bone nodules that are shrinking, but they have liver metastases that have grown. Um, can you just kind of maybe better explain how that data kind of equals only a 10% progression instead of what it looks like a 50% progression or, or whatever the math turns out to be. Because I think that sometimes that can be confusing, confusing for patients to understand, you know, sometimes there might be shrinkage somewhere and growth somewhere else, and they kind of cancel each other out in the data. Dr. Mosher, do you want to start with this one or you want me to? Sure. Um, it's extraordinarily confusing, you know, and a lot of times, the only way you know, because the we, you know, we do exactly what Dr. McKean said, which is we pick these lesions and then we decide which ones we're going to follow, which ones we're going to follow but not measure, and then we report a number. Um, but you know, there are some patients out there where you look at their report and you say, oh, well, if I would have just randomly chosen lesions differently three months ago when I put them on the study, it would be a different result. And I think. That's just the imperfect nature uh, that we have in terms of following patients and trying to quantify a response because, you know, personal benefit is, is such a qualitative thing. It's really hard to quantify that. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very hard. And sometimes even as investigators, when we're looking at data, we can't even necessarily know that either just based on how we do it. It's definitely something we, it would be great if we had a better option, but right now we just don't. Well, and I'll add to that most of these trials, there's, you know, any of them, there's a, there's a protocol and you have to stay within those guardrails, but say if you do meet progressive disease, like based on the, the lesions that were selected at baseline, um, there's greater than 20%. Most of these protocols will allow you to, um, you, you know, if you and the patient decide to stay on, oftentimes they'll say, okay, we'll let you stay on for another four to eight weeks with another scan just to see, well, you know, because sometimes, um, sometimes for patients with uveal melanoma, we can see some growth, but then things remain stable again for a period of time. Um, so I think it's worth recognizing that the protocols have guardrails, but there is still some flexibility for just doing what's best for, for you as a patient. So if that is, hey, should we try to give it a little bit more time, but if we're still seeing growth, then okay, th like this clearly isn't working. Or um, to say, hey, even if there's only been slight growth, like you're feeling much worse, like just, you know, we, it's, and we don't think it's side effects that we've been able to manage, then let's just come off study. You know, there's, there is that, um, th there is still some flexibility that you can, like you and your doctor can decide what's best within the trial. Now, certainly you want to be able to give that drug an opportunity to work, right? So, you know, if you're feeling miserable at two weeks on, you want to try to say, okay, is this toxic? Like, what can we do to help with side effects if this is from the disease or from the treatment? Um, but I think one of the things I'll talk to patients about is like, there are these parameters, but like Dr. Mojer said, if the lesions that you picked that all the other ones seem to be shrinking, well, then that's something that you go back to the sponsor and say, look, we think there's clinical benefit. We want to try to stay on a little bit longer. You know, that th there is opportunity for that um, on a trial. I think that's reassuring for sure, because it's important, I think, to note that, like you said, the studies are trying to quant quantify something 
that really is more qualitative data. It's more like looking at quality of life, looking at how long is the patient able to continue survival without you know, significant progression. Um, and that those things are of far more value than get everything shrink a ton. Because like you guys have all talked about um, between this session and the last session, sometimes that shrinkage takes a really, really long time, if it even happens at all. There's some patients who get stable and then they stay stable for years and there's no shrinkage, but their their tumors appear to be dead or they appear to just not be growing or whatever is happening. And, um, and it's so individual to every person. So I like what you said about just having that discussion with your doctor about um, you know, what, what's the, what's the risk benefit of going on or off the trial um, and, and is it time to move on or is there room for pushing to continue? And, and I'll add, you know, a lot of these studies are early in development. So sometimes it's worth asking um, on these trials, sometimes if it's dose escalation um, and a patient went in at say dose level two and the studies at dose level four, then a patient can what we call intrapatient dose escalate. Mm -hmm. So you can reach out to the sponsor and say, um, hey, you know, um, this scan has shown some growth, but this patient's tolerating the treatment well. Is there opportunity to go up in the dose? Sometimes um, some of these targeted therapies, um, they are exploring adding in another medication at progression. So I think it's it's certainly worth kind of going back and we're um, you know, Dr. Mosher and I, we're always kind of going back to the sponsor to say, what else is there that we can do to try to, you know, maximize this patient's benefit um, and, and try to keep them on, on trial if you think um, there is an opportunity to try to, um, you know, intensify treatment um, someplace. Okay. So we'll go on to the next study then. So um, the next one that we'll talk about is a phase 1B study of SLC45A2 endogenous T cells. So this is a study um, that was done at MD Anderson in Houston. And what they did is they took blood cells from patients' peripheral blood. So they put, you know, big IVs into these patients and then removed their immune cells. They only included patients with certain HLA types and that's HLA AO201 or HLA2402. And they took the immune cells out of the blood and you know they didn't provide the exact information uh, from their poster that they presented, but they trained these cells to attack or to express, or yeah, to attack or recognize, I should say, a protein called SLC45A2. And so this specific protein is actually like a melanosome transport protein melanomas are full of melanin, right? That's what makes them pigmented. So melanosomes are just the little blebs in the cell that contain melanin. So that means that a, this protein is really specific to melanoma cells and not to normal cells, which means, you know, in theory, we should be able to direct an immune system response to cells expressing this protein without having a lot of side effects because it's not expressed on normal tissue. I don't believe these were genetically modified cells. I think they were just trained or selected to uh, recognize this protein. These cell, once the cells were created, patients then received, I think two to three days of light chemotherapy to make room in the bone marrow for new cells. Then they were given the cell infusion either through an IV or through the hepatic arterial infusion, similar to what Dr. Katz talked about with uh, the trisalis system, except they didn't use, I don't believe they used that little pressure pump he talked about. And 
Um, then after this, the patients got low-dose interleukin-2. So interleukin-2 is a cytokine that tells T-cells to grow and expand. And usually when we do cell therapies, but not always, we give interleukin-2 afterwards to try to help the cells that we give grow and expand and become more numerous. So they, um, you know, I think they treated, can't remember how many people they treated. I think it may have been about 20. They didn't notice any responses on this trial, but there was some immune changes in some patients with stable disease. I think their median um, progression-free survival was on the order of about six months, if I recall correctly. They did note that they get better immune cell in expansion when the cells were given IV rather than infused into the hepatic artery, and the causes of that aren't clear. Um, but you know, currently between our, based on clinical trials like that, this is not actively recruiting, um, but it is an interesting studies. You know, anytime we see cell therapies, cell therapies and other tumors have been very potent and it really changed the landscape of blood tumors such as lymphoma and leukemia. So we always get excited about trying to use cell therapies um, in melanoma and other solid tumors as well. So I think this was a brilliant study to do um, you know, hopefully they're looking at ways to kind of treat it and make it better and we'll bring it back. Any other thoughts, Dr. McKean? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, such a just amazing technology um, and, and, you know, potential options, option for patients. And so I think it's certainly something to kind of stay tuned um, about to see, you know, where this goes in the future. All right, so um, PRT811, so this is a PRMT5 inhibitor. So there's actually a number of PRMT5 inhibitors um, in development, but this was one where they were specifically interested in looking at patients with uveal melanoma. So this same company, Prelude, had a um, prior PRMT5 inhibitor, PRT543, um, wasn't as well tolerated, but there were some early signals. This was kind of their second generation um, PRMT5 inhibitor. And this was specifically of interest for patients um, with splice site mutations. And so we know for patients with um, uveal melanoma, it's actually now showing up for Castle um, on the seven gene panel um, with a primary tumor. Um, you can see that this is one of the intermediate risk factors um, for patients with a primary tumor. So we know this is kind of dysregulated RNA splicing. And so a PRMT5 inhibitor, um, the goal is to basically try to um, try to correct that um, with a that it's a methyl transferase. Um, so basically trying to tell the cells not to um, splice the RNA um, exactly where they are. So this was a study that was um, ongoing for um, several years. Um, they did enroll they saw some early signals in the dose escalation. So they did enroll um, 10 additional patients with a splicing site mutation um, and then 13 without because they weren't sure um, if it was necessarily specific to patients that have an SF3B1 mutation. And so, you know, what they saw is that, um, so this was a brain penetrant molecule, which is um, nice. We know the, the rate and risk of brain metastases for patients with uveal melanoma early in disease is, is low, um, but we can start seeing some of these brain metastases later in the course of a patient's um, disease. But in general, it was well tolerated. Um, the side effects were primarily GI, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue. We could see a rash or thinning of the hair. 
But what they showed was that there was about a 50% disease control rate, including several patients with um, tumor shrinkage. This kind of gets back to our discussion before. Tumor shrinkage, so prolonged stable disease, but those patients had about 20% shrinkage as opposed to meeting that threshold of 30% shrinkage. Um, but there was one patient with a confirmed PR. So this study is currently closed, but I think there's I think there's still more for us to learn um, in this space. And so um, I, I do think, you know, there were certainly some patients that benefited, but it wasn't a, a home run, you know, that it's ideal when you have like a specific marker for a patient, right? And you can match it up with this drug specifically should work for you. Um, we, we, there was a, a signal there, but um, they, they closed because they just, they weren't seeing consistent benefit. And so I think more to come here in this space um, um, for patients, you know, because that's, that's what we would love is to be able to say as much progress as we've made for patients with uveal melanoma by identifying you have a BAP1, you have an SF3B1, like how can we in turn uh, um, help that, um, you know, with our, with our treatment selection? I agree. And I think, you know, if we can find something to target the specific mutations like the SF3B1 mutation, which we see in a handful of uveal melanomas, and we know actually means if you have a primary melanoma and you have a mutation in FS3B1, you're actually higher risk for a very late recurrence. You know, a lot of times when we send castle testing, we give people their five-year quote. But for these patients, we typically see, you know, recurrences much later, 10, sometimes 15 years later. And so I think if we can, you know, kind of revive this space like Dr. McKean said and really learn more about how can we target this specific mutation and exploit it, there definitely is benefit to the community. So hopefully this isn't the last thing that we see in this space. The next thing we'll talk about is tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. And we're gonna kind of talk about this broadly because there's actually multiple different studies in different sites going on, one of which was presented uh, at ASCO this year. So first of all, what are tumor infiltrating lymphocytes? So lymphocytes are just the immune cells that attack you know, um, bacteria, viruses, different infections, but also attack our cancers. And tumor infiltrating lymphocytes just means they're lymphocytes that are in the tumor. And it's been well known for you know, 50 plus years that when pathologists look at cancer under a microscope, the cancers that have a lot of lymphocytes inside tended to do better. And so because of that, starting I think the late 70s, the National Cancer Institute and the NIH surgical branch started doing tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy where they would cut out these tumors, break the tumor tissue down into a single cell suspension, remove the lymphocytes, and then grow them from a couple hundred to a couple billion. They then give these back to patients. And this has been shown to be beneficial. And um, currently there's been a couple trials from, from IAVANCE that have shown benefit in patients with cutaneous melanoma. And this is actually currently being reviewed by the FDA. I think the FDA is supposed to give a response by late November. But we're also studying this in uveal melanoma. So I believe um, UPMC in Pittsburgh has a TIL trial that's actively going. There's a trial at MD Anderson that we'll talk about that was discussed at ASCO. And then Turnstone Bio uh, actually has a trial of their TIL therapy that's going on at kind of multiple sites. So what, when we do tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy, it's very similar to the last therapy we talked about where you give people chemotherapy for a couple of days. Usually in this case, it's five to seven days. 
we give the cells back. And then instead of giving low-dose IL-2, the cytokine that helps the, the immune cells expand, they give high-dose IL-2, which has to be done in the hospital under monitoring because it can be done safely, but it can be very toxic if you know not done well or get side effects. So in the study that they presented at MD Anderson, um, they collected, they successfully collected and grew TILs from I think 30 or 40 plus patients with uveal melanoma. Nine patients were treated with this regimen. Of the nine patients that were treated, they did see two responses. So a 22% response rate. The exciting thing about this is both of those patients who responded continued to have that response well over a year. I think one patient was 16 months and another patient was over 20 months. So this is a very intense but one-time therapy that can provide durable responses. And that durability we see in the other TIL trials that have been studied both in cutaneous melanoma um, and that they're looking at in other tumors currently. So currently these studies are recruiting. There's this very limited availability between all three studies. Um, and currently I think it's only offered at maybe five or six, seven sites um, in the US. So it's very limited. There tends to be long wait lists. But if this is FDA approved for melanoma later this year, you know, uveal melanoma does fall under the umbrella of melanoma. And so if we continue to see good results with this, it is possible that this could be done as standard of care if it's FDA approved later this year once the centers get up and running. So I think this is an exciting thing to kind of follow. Again, it's very intense. It's very toxic. It's about a month of treatment. And so you have to be pretty fit to get this. But it is a one-time treatment that can be durable, but a very intense one-time treatment. Yeah, I think I think certainly an exciting area. Um, and like you said, it's been on, in development for long time um, because it is an, an intense treatment, but um, would really love to be able to see this as a more common option um, for a, it's a highly selected patient population. Um, you know, I, I think um, cutaneous melanoma, sometimes it's easier to get um, larger tumors, but especially for um, patients with uveal melanoma that maybe has, you know, a cutaneous metastasis as opposed to having to do multiple cores of the liver. Um, you know, I, I think I agree with you. I'd love to see a little bit more availability because right now it is just a challenge challenge, just being in a couple centers, waiting lists, um, and, and sometimes you don't have the time to necessarily wait just to see if you're a candidate. Great. And I think we're um, rounding third, headed to home here um, with our, our trials list. Um, so briefly, just going over the Scandium and Scandium 2 trials. So these um, were um, trials that uh, were presented recently at ASCO out of Sweden, some of our colleagues there. Um, and so these are um, trials that I think the important point was just, you know, as we look at maybe some combination therapies, um, what does that look like in the field? So these were patients, the Scandium-1 was um, just doing high-dose melphalan um, um, in the liver. Scandium-2 was with Ibinevo. 
Um, and basically they showed that there could be some significant toxicities. Um, so, you know, some there was um, one patient that wasn't able to um, proceed with um, liver-directed treatment after getting neoadjuvant treatment, um, but they did show that of the patients treated, there was um, an overall response rate of 63% in arm A, um, and that was with the ipinevo. Um, there were three complete responses, four patients with a partial response. Um, so with the treatment alone was 24%, and then you add in that ipinevo, 63%. So I think, you know, Dr. Moser, you're probably like me, you get a lot of questions, like you were saying, with liver-directed, you like to follow with systemic therapy, but a lot of folks that will say, gosh, can you just do the ipinevo at the same time? Um, and I think there's a lot of hesitation just with, with doing too much to the liver, right? We know we want to be aggressive with the liver, um, but also we know just with ipinevo, you can get immune-related hepatitis, when we're doing that intense liver-directed treatment, um, can also certainly have um, irritation of the liver pain. And so I think what this study um, was exciting because it did show that being able to, you know, the goal of trying to control the liver aggressively while doing systemic therapy, I think is going to be an avenue that we continue to pursue moving forward. Um, but I, th I think certainly, um, um, having to be very, very mindful of the toxicities and how to best navigate that moving forward. I agree. I think, you know, this liver, isolated liver perfusion or hepatic or percutaneous hepatic perfusion, um, the response rates that we see in the liver, especially in combination with ipinevo are exciting. Again, it's very toxic. It's a recurrent treatment. So it has to be selected for the right patient. But I'm excited to see this kind of come out further. I know Delcap, their version in the United States is currently under FDA review. I hopefully that gets approved and we can start seeing this being offered at more places because I think for the right person, this can be a really great option. Um, so we got a couple of questions. So before we go to the last trial, we'll answer some questions. So one person asked, where are these infiltration sites? So for the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, um, it's UPMC in Pittsburgh, MD Anderson in Houston, um, and then for the turnstone bio study, you, you can look on clinicaltrials.gov, but the two that I know of off the top of my head are Moffitt in Tampa and then um, Providence Health in Portland. There's probably a couple others too. I don't know, Meredith, if you know of any others, but uh, those are the ones I know off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I think those are the, the main sites. And, um, just in case the question was more, like where the the infiltration sites of the lymphocytes and the tumor um, in case that that was also the, the question you know they're really just looking at an easily accessible tumor and so that's why if there is a you know lymph node that's easily accessible or a subcutaneous lesion that they could they're looking for something that they could surgically resect to then take out the lymphocytes that have infiltrated into the tumor. Um, and so if they need to, they can do like multiple core biopsies of a liver lesion, um, but it can be challenging. And that's part of the consultation that they would discuss is like, are there gonna, is there enough tumor that they can reach to try to get those lymphocytes out of the inside? So and either way, you know, those, those would be the, the sites where they're doing this. And then the el patient eligibility, um, you know, it, they're looking, they, that's why they look at your imaging so closely um, and your candidacy, like whether or not you can do till that can evolve over the course of your disease. So we, well, do, have we a, do have a 
we do have a question here and I'm going to try and generalize the question a little bit more. Um, but what is, I guess, in your guys's opinion, what's the, what's the risk benefit of doing something like immunoembolization at Jefferson that is a little bit more maybe well-known in the metastatic treatment community, um, versus doing one of these trials that's significantly progressed, like to mixed with Prime. Um, I think you guys had mentioned like that Tebby, that Tebby Prime combination, you guys thought the data looked more promising even than just ChemTrack alone. Um, but then there's also kind of that, that balance of disease control in the liver, which immunoembolization can provide. Um, so do you guys have any suggestions or comments there to that kind of a, a situation? Yeah, I tell, tend to tell patients, you know, I'll, I'll tell them honestly, like this is a new trial and we need more information. So I wouldn't jump to it right away. Or we have data about this study and it looks exciting. And I think for the Tebendafusp and Prime trial, you know, we have data already. We've seen responses. It's a good option. Um, so when I'm trying to counsel a patient between one or two options, it's, you know, we've never compared these things head to head. So we don't know which one is more effective. We just know that they both can be effective. So the conversation I typically have is with side effects and quality of life. You know, obviously embolizations are one or two, maybe three treatments, depending on which type you're getting, and then you're done, you know, versus a study like the immunocore studies, which are weekly treatments or other studies where you have to come in every two weeks. And so it's really, you know, what's, what's most important to you is a one and done treatment and having freedom more important is being a, is going on a clinical trial that you know you can only get first line and never get again, um, that more important. And it's really just the kind of holistic picture of benefits, side effects, quality of life, and how much you're tethered to the clinics, and really trying to make the right decision for the patient. Yeah, I, I echo that. I, I do think, um, you know, some of these studies, I think, um, as Dr. Moser mentioned, it, it is important to understand just like the IDA study, the PREM study, they are moving to the frontline setting. And so that's going to be the opportunity to get it. It used to be, hey, at some point you can come and get these treatments, but they are being more selective. Um, now the PREM study um, is still currently allowing liver directed treatment that you can go on. So, um, and, you know, not knowing the specifics of your situation, if it's immunoembolization, that's usually an option that they would offer with kind of lower, a little bit lower volume, less aggressive disease. Um, and so, but I do think it's helpful just to talk, make sure your whole care team knows what your options are because everyone has a little bit of expertise. They might be able to say, you know, hey, the, the disease in the liver looks like, you know, from that last scan to this scan, it is advancing a little bit more aggressively we should probably go forward with liver-directed therapy. And then you can still hopefully go back to um, Prime potentially, or you know, if you're close to the Angeles Clinic, it's right down the street. Um, I don't know if you can be right down the street in easy traffic in LA, but um, if it is easier to get to the clinic, um, you know, maybe that is more feasible. And you know, the data looks looks really exciting. But there's 
I think one thing I try to stress to patients is there's no one right answer and there, whatever the results are you know, presented, we try our best to individualize it for you, but each patient's disease and situation is, is unique. And we all will try to help you um, work through that, but there isn't kind of one right answer for, for every patient. Yeah, I like, I think that's, that's such a, an important thing. And I think that really um, kind of also answers the last question that we have as we're ending. And it's just, how do you decide between how many, prom like all of these promising trials? And it really just comes down to, it is such an individual discussion with your doctor. Um, and it really depends on a lot of factors for you as the patient that you have to discuss with your doctor openly, like anything from travel and, and financial um, feasibility to the potential, you know, response rate and, and the, the risk benefit of, of the various different types of trials. Like, I think what, what I was hearing from things like the till therapy is that maybe that would be something that, um, someone in the younger patient population might be a little bit more likely to be successful with versus someone who is maybe a little bit older, maybe over the age of 50, they just may not have the physical stamina for something like that. So taking all of those into account, I think is, is something that when you have a good uveal melanoma specialist who like we've talked about, who is well-versed in the field, who's consulting with all of the other doctors in the field and just comparing notes, they will help, uh, that will help to make that decision. So we'll jump to our last study then before we pass it off to Dr. Dalvin. So the last study we're going to talk about is targeted alpha particle radiotherapy for uveal melanoma. So this is one of these trials of this new wave that we're seeing in oncology, which I call liquid radiation just for simplicity. So classically, when we give radiation, you go to a room, there's a machine that goes around you, and there's a beam that goes from the outside to the inside. We now are able to give radioactive particles through an IV and through different methods we target them to certain proteins in cells. And so it's a way of kind of giving radioactive molecules IV, but having them self-target to cancers. So we can radiate cancer everywhere in the body versus um, just one or two spots or targeted spots using the conventional outside-in approach. And so when we think about these liquid radiations, there are two currently approved liquid radiations for the treatment of cancer. One is called uh, well, they're both lutetium-based, which is the radioactive molecule. One is called lutathera, one is called pluvicto, and those are for neuroendocrine tumors or prostate cancer. And lutetium is what we call a beta emitter, and alpha and beta are just different types of radiation. And the biggest difference is how far they, how far they go. So lutetium is a beta emitter, so it releases radiation a longer distance than alpha particles. And so there's a lot of excitement right now about trying to use alpha emitters because they, they radiate in such a shorter area, which means we hopefully can see less side effects with these treatments because if we take that radioactive material, truly stick it to the cancer, and the radiation only goes as far as the cancer but no further, we should be able to treat these cancers with less side effects. And there's a couple of different trials in this space, but this is one specific for uveal melanoma. Um, it's currently in phase one studies, I believe, and I believe it's only available at Moffitt. Um, it is for patients with refractory uveal melanoma, so patients with at least one prior line of therapy. And I don't know the specifics, but clinicaltrials.gov didn't clarify if that had to be a systemic therapy or liver-directed, or it could be a liver-directed therapy. 
and it is currently enrolling. You know, typically when you do these studies and you get the IV infusion, there are some lifestyle changes you have to temporarily make. All these radioactive molecules are cleared from, from the kidney. So usually you have to kind of use your own bathroom for a couple of days, make sure you drink lots of water to flush it out. They usually tell you that you should sleep in a different bed from your uh, partner for at least three days, you know, and a lot of other things like double flush the toilet and stuff like that. Um, so it's an easy treatment to do, but there are a lot of lifestyle things that you have to be able to accommodate. So you're not inadvertently, you know, giving someone else radiation by sleeping next to them. Um, but I do think, you know, radio ligands or these, these uh, particle radiotherapies are going to be a huge wave in oncology in the next 10 to 15 years. And I'm excited that we're looking at them in uveal melanoma so early. Yeah, I think this is just um, an exciting mechanism of action, and I think just a very different treatment than um, what's available with some of the other systemic therapies. Um, so I, I agree, I'm, I'm excited, and we'll, we'll kind of see where this leads, but I think a great option for patients. I love this. This has been a lot of information. Um, so those of you guys listening, feel free to come back, listen to the recording. This is being recorded and the recording will be up on YouTube as well as our Facebook immediately following. Um, and then it'll come up on the podcast after our audio is edited. Uh, but I don't see any other specific questions. I just want to thank you both for your time. Um, thank you, Dr. Moser, for joining me in the early bird situation here. <laughs> it's been fun. Um, but it's just, it's just such valuable, valuable information. So thank you both. Right. Thank you. And thanks to Kevin. I know we both had looked at, he does like a fantastic summary um, that's, uh, that's available um, through your group. So I think certainly stay tuned to Kevin for future um, um, research um, and, and conference updates, but thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. McKean. All right. I think we're about ready to move on to having Dr. Dalvin join us. Um, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Dalvin, and thanks for your patience. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. I'm going to see. There we go. I think, I think that we were having a tiny bit of a technical glitch and I didn't know how to fix it. So hopefully it's, hopefully, hopefully it's fixed. Um, so Dr. Dalvin is joining us, and I apologize that I didn't explain this at the beginning. So for those of you who are still here with us, um, we are having the Ion Research mini seminar to talk about the data that was presented at various different conventions, specifically at ASCO, which is the American Society for Clinical Oncology. And there's also the um, AACR convention that happens, and that took place, I believe, in March of this year, and that stands for the American Association for Cancer Research. And then the last one that we have Dr. Dalvin talking about specifically is the ARVO, which is the Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology. So she's our eye expert. You guys have heard her talk a few times, and so we're so glad that she's back here to talk about some of the data that's been released from CASEL, some of the data that's been released generally in the the eye treatment sphere. And of course she has a lot of knowledge and expertise in there. So, so thank you for being here, Dr. Dalvin. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about the ARVO data. Um, so ARVO is a really special meeting to me. It's actually the first scientific meeting that I ever attended. Um, and it really has a different vibe than a lot of other scientific meetings. So we have a lot of formal clinical conferences where you typically go in a suit. Um, this 
you know, way back in the day, we used to always have this meeting in Florida and people would show up in shorts and like a Hawaiian t-shirt. And so it's very welcoming when you're at a new training stage and it's very international. So this meeting has really wonderful opportunities for building collaborations and for somebody who's newer to really connect with more senior researchers. Um, and so I've become more involved in Arvo over the years and I'm currently on the planning committee. Um, so we had a really fantastic and very busy Arvo this year and we have all these different subsections. Um, so our subsection is the anatomy, pathology, and oncology section. And we usually have like a whole poster session and a whole talk session dedicated to uveal melanoma because it's such an important topic for so many of us here. Um, so there were a lot of exciting things presented at this year's ARVO meeting. And as you alluded to, um, one of the things that was presented was an update from Castle, um, and they have really done just a tremendous job creating a fantastic prognostic test that we use now very routinely in our clinical practice that probably many, many of you on the call perhaps have had. Um, and so um, Kat from Castle, who does just a phenomenal job, presented the updated data on 1,996 tumors and really showed what a great test this is. Um, you don't need a lot of material from this test. It is a direct into the tumor biopsy, but even with a really, really, really small sample, they're getting success rates greater than 97% of the time they're able to give out a result. Um, and many of you may know that result typically comes in the form of giving a class status that helps predict metastatic risk of uveal melanoma, which we've been talking about, I think, with some of the other trials today and how that plays into clinical trial eligibility. Um, and interestingly, what they presented um, was actually, I thought, pretty good news. Of all of the tumors they tested, almost half of them actually came back as a class 1A result, which is the low risk for metastatic disease group. Um, so, you know, sometimes this biopsy information can provide a tremendous amount of reassurance. And so for people who get that class 1A, um, it can really be a big relief and can make a big difference in quality of life. On the other side, they found almost 20% were a class 1B, which is a little higher risk, and then a little over 30% fell into that class two category. And that class two category is really what's gonna to wanna to make us screen, do systemic scans much more often and potentially think about enrolling in some of these clinical trials for prevention of metastatic risk. Some of the other things that they talked about is how often do they see PRAME positive status in tumors? And, and as you may know, and they may have mentioned earlier, PRAME expression, um, is a poor prognostic marker. If you have positive PRAME expression, it does put you at higher risk for metastasis. Um, but again, pretty good news, really less than 30%, less than a third of tumors had positive PRAME expression. So actually most of the tumors that are being biopsied may fall into more favorable prognostic categories. And then we know now that the CASEL test looks at some sequencing. So it looks at specific mutations. Um, and this is really, I think, gonna play long-term into clinical trials and personalizing medicine for patients with uveal melanoma. So they're able to tell us how many patients have a GNA11 or a GNAQ mutation, which, is our, which are our primary drivers of uveal melanoma. But then they can also tell us about 30% of patients have a BAF1 mutation, about 12% 
have that SF3B1 mutation that Dr. Moser was talking about, and about 20% have an EIF1AX mutation. And so these things, ultimately, I think when we know a little bit more and when we learn perhaps which mutations play into a drug response are really going to drive what trials we send our patients to and, and how we manage people long-term. Um, so, you know, the folks at Castle, I think, have just done such a phenomenal job of, of really creating this information that it not only is helping us right now, but I think is going to play an even bigger and bigger role as we move on to the future. Well, and to me, this sounds, I mean, I know we talked about this back in like January, but to me, this sounds right in line with everything you're working on at the Living Library at the Mayo Clinic. Um, so for those of you who have not heard that episode or that webinar that Dr. Dalvin did, go listen. Back in January, we did a Living Library um, discussion. She presented on what this is that she's gathering data for, but essentially it's going to allow us to do just that in the field where we can look at these, these prognostic tests, we can look at the makeup of the tumor, and then we can then individualize the therapies that patients are recommended first based on how do they respond in the living library. So that's like a super concise version of how, how this all works, but, um, but it's really exciting stuff to see that this individualization of future treatment is, is coming. Yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. And people are working on other ways to get this information as well. Um, so one of the really cool things that they presented at Arvo um, Dr. Jesse Berry and Leah Shu from Los Angeles showcased their work on aqueous biopsy, and they've been working on this for a long time in the retinoblastoma space, but they're trying to bring this into our uveal melanoma patients. And so as we talked about the castle test, it needs such a small amount of tissue, but it is an invasive biopsy that puts a needle into the tumor. And so we're actually finding that in things like the aqueous humor, which is the fluid that fills the front of your eye, or even in the vitreous fluid in the back of the eye, or even potentially in the bloodstream, we can pick up some of these markers. Um, so they presented that they can look in the aqueous humor and actually find a lot of markers that correlate with what that castle test result would be. So down the line, we're looking into potentially things like an eye fluid test or a blood test that would be less invasive for people who have a really small tumor or a tumor that's in your center of vision where you maybe don't want to stick a needle because you're worried about complications like retinal detachment or bleeding that causes scarring and vision loss, then you may have this more accessible way to get a fluid test. And it could even expand into groups who are looking at things in the blood. Can we detect changes in expression of these markers in the blood over time. So can we actually pick up metastasis or cancer spread before the scans can see it by looking at these markers in the blood? So I think a lot of these things really are, are going to be on the horizon and are going to feed so much into what our medical oncologists are able to do. Yeah. And that's super powerful. Just that, that idea that we can, we can go from the, okay, we have it in the eye, or, you know, we can predict that it's going to metastasized based on these patterns, based on this blood work. Um, and I think that's, I think what Dr. Moser and, and even Dr. Hamid and Dr. Carvajal talked about earlier is just this idea of liquid biopsies and those circulating biopsies where we get more information um, and sometimes more accurate information before it shows up on the scans. And obviously that would be the ideal situation for everyone is let's know what's coming before it shows up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you know, we had so much opportunity. We've got a lot of groups, both in the oncology and the ophthalmology space who are really working together on developing these tests. Um, so as you mentioned, you know, our group, and there's 
there are some other groups too who are working on these 3D models. So just as we've been building our living library, um, trying to grow individual patient tumor samples, um, at Arvo, there's a group, um, Solange Landreville from Canada, who presented a 3D model where they're taking not only the tumor itself, but if they'll, they'll mimic an eye tumor by taking surrounding eye tissue, or they'll try to mimic a liver metastasis by taking some of the surrounding liver tissue and letting that organize into its own three-dimensional structure. Um, and that's really cool because not only are you getting what is the tumor behavior, but you're able to see then in the lab what's the interaction of the tumor cells with the other normal organ tissues. Um, so these things, you know, we're all kind of on the same page, really excited about three-dimensional models for testing of drugs in the lab. And these are really cool because, you know, unlike animals, which are very expensive and can be kind of ethically ambiguous and challenging, and unlike two-dimensional cell culture, which may not really simulate what's going in the body, these three-dimensional models really are able to predict what's going to happen in a patient in terms of drug response. And there have been people who've used these models for other types of cancers that have been very difficult to treat. And they've actually been able to show that how the 3D model responds to any given drug in the lab correlates really well with how a patient is actually going to respond to that drug in real life. And so what I'm, you know, I'm trying to do, and some of my other colleagues have been trying to do is, can we take that same strategy then and take your tumor sample and have a panel of drugs that we might want to test that we know are clinically available and then know what your tumor responds to in the lab and actually give you the best responding drug in real life. And so I think that's part of where we may be heading. Um, that's going to, again, just personalize our treatments. No, I love that. So I do have a question around this. Um, when you take like uh, an eye tumor, um, is there is there any data that's showing that the eye tumor that say then spreads and becomes metastatic in the liver um, despite treatment and whatever has happened, nucleation, radiation, proton beam therapy, whatever has happened to the eye, the tumor has then metastasized um, later in the future. Uh, is there... Is there data showing the comparison between the primary tumor and the liver tumor, say, to show that, like, are they different? Are they are they related, like cousins, maybe? Are they siblings? Is it like the mom and then the dad or the mom and then the son? Like, what is what is the relationship here and how can they be different? Yeah, this is a great question. So um, there are some good data to show that they don't really quite behave the same. Um, and why is that? Is it because they're in a different environment? Is it the selection process of what cells like to grow in the liver or like to grow in the lungs versus what liked to survive in the eye? Um, it's hard to say. Part of what our lab is actually expanding to is now we've started collecting metastatic tissue from some of these patients who had originally enrolled in our living library. And so then one of the next phases of our research is actually in the lab. Can we compare your individual eye tumor to your individual liver tumor so that it's not necessarily just a broad primary tumors look different than metastatic tumors comparison, but what are the precise changes that happened in an individual case-by-case -case basis that make your metastasis different? And does that change how your metastasis might respond to a drug versus how your primary tumor might have responded to a drug? So I think this is a really good area that we're going to be learning a lot about in the coming years. Okay. I love that. I think that's 
Um, that's just kind of where my, my confusion has been is it's like, okay, but if we know it works for the eye tumor, but then the liver tumor behaves differently, how do we know it will work for the liver tumor? Um, so I love that you guys are, you guys are figuring that out. You're in the process. Like that's, that's on the, it's on the table of like, we know this is an issue. We have to figure this out. Yes. I think that's such an important question. And, you know, then the next question, right. is going to be, okay, if you have an eye tumor and you're high risk for metastasis, and we know that your eye tumor looks like this. Can we predict what your metastasis or your micrometastasis might be and how that might be different so that we can give the right drug? Because we may not have a biopsy sample of a metastasis to test at the time we'd really want to be treating. Yeah. Well, and, and so then another question to kind of go into that like idea is, okay, well, if the goal is to say we've got a primary tumor, we know in the eye it was high risk. So therefore you have a high risk. We have all of this data that says you have whatever percentage it is that, that you could metastasize in the next two to five years or whatever, whatever time frame. Um, how do we then, I mean, how do we then make the justification for the treatment when there's nothing to see, right? Because, and I guess that comes back to the circulating tumor cells and the blood biopsies and those kinds of things to be able to prove, no, we see it here. We need to treat. Um, before it shows up in the liver, because obviously, you know, and we know, like once it gets to the liver, it becomes much harder to treat historically, maybe not for everyone, but for the majority of people, um, it's not hopeless by any means, but it just, if we could, if we could get ahead of it, that would be so powerful for sure. Yes. I, I think you're exactly correct. I mean, it's, it's going to be all of these things together, really inputting into the future. What's your risk, monitor your blood the moment we see a spike in that molecular marker in the blood, then give you the right drug that's individualized for your tumor. No, that, that's the ideal, right? That's Nip the it ideal. In the it's a lot of work to get there as we all know, but you know, this is why we need to work together. And this is why we're so thankful for our patients who contribute to our research. And we're so thankful for each other because we all have different expertise and, and different little pieces of the puzzle that we can put together. No, for sure. Well, and, and like you said, it's, it's continuing to grow and escalate and like, there's, there's more data each and each time and just more people who are looking for kind of the same thing and just try and try and, I guess it's, it's kind of like, if you're doing a puzzle, like if you have more people looking for the puzzle piece, like you're more likely to find it eventually, <laughs> or yeah. you'll find a different one that fits better and, and fits in a way that you didn't expect. And it somehow still is helpful. Um, Cause I know that can also be a problem when you do a puzzle is sometimes you need another piece to be able to fit the piece you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're so right on that. And, you know, I think the scientific community has realized this too, and they've put a lot more emphasis recently on things like team science awards, because they know that science, the best science probably doesn't happen in a vacuum. It really happens. Yeah. When people with different expertise get together. No, for sure. Well, Dr. Dalvin, this has been awesome. Was there anything else that you felt like you wanted to cover? Um, there were just a couple of exciting things potentially down the pipeline for uveal melanoma treatment that I can touch on really briefly. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, ARVO, because it's more of a basic science conference, this stuff is really, really early. So this is kind of a far cry from what our other doctors were talking about earlier today that's really ready for prime time for patients. But we had some really interesting findings. We had um, a group from Isagiltura out of Germany, and they talked about the impact of hyperglycemia, which I thought was really cool. They found in uveal melanoma cells in the lab, 
if there were there, if there was too much sugar exposure, essentially, this induced abnormalities in chromosome three, which we know kind of almost goes hand in hand with that BAP1 loss, that high risk class two status. So potentially blood sugar control could play an important role. And again, this is very, very early data, uh, but we know already, especially for diabetic patients, having blood sugar under really good control is so many other important health benefits anyway. Mm -hmm. So it potentially just adds another reason to really work on blood sugar control because it potentially could create a less aggressive uveal melanoma pattern. And oh. along that same exact line, um, from MD Anderson, they looked at the insulin-like growth factor pathway and found that it might be overactivated in uveal melanoma. So blocking that pathway actually killed uveal melanoma cells in the lab. So, you know, this is just, I thought, really potentially accessible information. That's such an easy lifestyle type of intervention that we can kind of think about and conceptualize and apply to our everyday lives. And, you know, it's hard to know for sure how the data are going to pan out, but it, it doesn't hurt because it's so good for other things in our life anyway. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely so beneficial. Um, and I, I'm probably kind of speculating here, but um, have you ever heard the, the, of studies that were done around cancer patients that like level, they, they leveled their blood sugar and they, they found that cancer patients, um, I believe it was urine was sweet smelling and that it was very similar to a, a, a presenting diabetic patient. And that that was kind of where that blood sugar control came into, into play. Um, I mean, I'm sitting here wearing a CGM. So, so also controlling my blood sugar. And like you said, it gets, it's something that that diet, um, management, and it's not even just food, right? Like eating to your blood sugar doesn't mean you're never eating sugar. Like I ate a cupcake the other day, like full disclosure. Um, but it just means that you are watching for those patterns and you're trying to keep things regular and you're learning to eat in accordance with what keeps your blood sugar more stable, as opposed to letting it do this all the time. Um, because, you know, and, and like you said, that's, that's only going to benefit you as a person, because when you experience those kinds of spikes, you're tired all the time, your energy levels are low. Like there's so many different benefits aside from the potential that it might help. <laughs> like, because like you said, the data is still early, but if it might help, then like, what's it going to hurt? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I think that's really cool. So the IGF blocking, um, do, do they have any, um, any anticipated ideas for like what can block the IGF pathways? Um, yes, they, they have an inhibitor that's got a very molecular name yet. So it's not yet in okay. a fun drug name status, but um, yeah, they did have something that they were actually able to treat cells in the lab that seemed to cause uveal melanoma cell death. And they okay. actually correlated this too with data from the cancer genome atlas, which, um, you know, is, has been a really nice registry that took 80 uveal melanomas and analyzed them on an incredibly detailed molecular level. Um, and they also, you know, found again, that that pathway was just overactive in these aggressive cancers. So that was called the cancer genome, what? The cancer genome atlas. So it's um, TCGA. If you um, ever Google that, there's a really, really high level detailed paper um, in cancer cell, but it's really fantastic data. No, oh, I love that. I, um, just wrote that down. Cause I'm like, that sounds like something I want to read. <laughs> um, the, I guess the, what was the other part that I, oh, did, did anything happen in, at, at ARVO, um, 
or have you heard anything around our biosciences and their upcoming um, treatment of uveal melanoma to the eye with their, their specific treatment? Yeah, we're all kind of gearing up for the next phase of this trial. Um, so um, at Mayo, we're going to be participating in the next phase of this trial as well. So we're we're just kind of waiting on the start date and the finalization of all of the paperwork here. But um, as you may know, historically, this has been potentially a promising treatment for really small uveal melanomas, especially things in the macula where your center of vision is that we would love to avoid irradiating because we'd love to avoid the vision loss that comes mm -hmm. with that. Um, so this involves injecting nanoparticles into the eye that can tag themselves to uveal melanoma cells and then applying a photodynamic therapy laser that activates those nanoparticles to kill the uveal melanoma. Um, so they're kind of, they've kind of changed up the delivery method so that we're going to be hopefully targeting this a little more directly exactly to the tumor cells. Um, and I'm really excited for hopefully in the next couple of months, we can start enrolling for this. Oh, that's super exciting. So um, do you happen to know the trial number that people could look up if they want to learn more about that one? It's a good question. I don't, yeah, I don't. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can find it out. I know it's the Aura Biosciences, but I just don't want to mess up the number. I, I think it's AU and then something, something, something. Um, that's that's all we got for my brain this morning. Um, no, Dr. Dabin, this has been so cool. And I, I, I share your excitement. I think this is really exciting stuff to just see where things are headed and, and to kind of see that landscape playing out um, and just building itself um, and building on itself, like based on previous research and, and just anticipating where it could go next. Yeah, I, you know, I can't wait to see how this plays out. I'm in this field for a long time. So, you know, I expect by the time I'm getting ready to retire in several decades from now, that we're going to have cures for this disease. That's, I really think that we can do it. Well, I think that's such a hopeful note for us to end on. Is there anything else that you want to add as we end? I don't think anything else. I just want to thank you. And again, thank our patients. You know, we're, we're here for you. Anything that we can do for you, any information we can provide, um, you know, that's, that's our passion. And we want to see all of our patients survive, beat this. And so we're going to work together to get that done. Well, thank you so much for all of your hard work and um, to all of our doctors who came on previously on a Saturday morning of all days. Um, so thank you for being here. I know summertime, it can be kind of hit and miss, but we're really appreciative of you guys helping bring this information and just break it down for us as patients so that we can understand it. Uh, for those of you continuing to listen or those of you catching the recording, please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have specific questions um, for any of these doctors who spoke the last couple of hours. If you want us to pass those questions on, um, we can pass them on and um, just try and get a little bit better of an answer if you're not able to get it from the presentations. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.